on maynard.com.au. AU! That's just what I've always wanted. Just what I've always wanted. Valued listener, only three musical artists deserve their very own section in my extensive music collection. They are ABBA, Tom Jones, and our guest today, Mary Wilson. From an early beginning in the backyard bathtub in Neasden to the bright lights of New York City and Crouch End, Mary has wowed the world with her albums such as Show People, The Rhythm Romance, Pop Deluxe and Emotional Glamour. And the singles, from the perfect 80s pop of Just What I Always Wanted to the cinematically dangerous Would I Dance With a Stranger. Would you dance with a stranger if the stranger were me? To any of the belting heartfelt ballads on Pop Deluxe. Boy George, Mark Armand, Heaven 17, not to mention Harry, Barry, Larry, Gary, Carrie, and of course, Jim. Despite never realising her lifelong dream of owning a donkey by the seaside, Mary has succeeded in breathing life and laughter into her catchphrase, it's a glamorous song and it's glamorously sung. My favourite UK type 1 diabetic, please welcome Miss Beehive, the knees and queen of soul, eat, drink and be Mary, in fact be Mary McMillan Ramsey Wilson. Hi, Mary. Hello there. That was quite something, wasn't it, that intro? Goodness me. Well, that's very kind of you. You missed one album out there, and that's Cover Stories. It was the one before Pop Deluxe. It happens to be true. I only want to be with you. It's very sparse, just piano and... I saw you giving a lovely sparse performance of Female of the Species on YouTube at a show. Shut yourself up, God, I think I've only sung that once, that song. What got me was it was in a, in a lovely restaurant and, and people were eating. Mary is singing, don't eat the soup while the woman's singing. <laughs> Great version. Well, thank you. That was that was years ago. My goodness, how long ago? That must have been 20 years ago, at least. Great band, minimal arrangement. I quite liked it. In fact, we've, we've got telegrams from people that want me to say hello to you. Some of your Australian fans want me to say hello and ask some questions. Are you up for it, Mary? Absolutely, of course. <laughs> first one comes from Dave Milton, who is the owner of the Blue Note Club in Derby. <laughs> that brings back some hilarious memories, that does. He said that Mary and her band were always the most professional and the easiest group to work with that I ever worked with while I owned the Blue Note. There you go. Well, that's nice to know. I don't think every club owner would say that, mind you. <laughs> is that because sometimes there were 12 of you and you left mud marks in the dressing room and that sort of thing? I'm pretty OCD. You know, I always leave the dressing room probably tidier than when I get there. When I look back to those times, I mean, the Blue Note was fantastic. We had some fantastic gigs there. I think we played there a few times, actually. It was just very vibey. And it was at the time when I always find this quite hard to describe. But before you become whatever word you want to use, famous or, 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 or successful or known, you know, before you have that hit, it's the time sort of just before that that you never get back again. You know, not as, as massive as somebody like Madonna, but still for a few years, I was having hit records and touring and recognised and all that kind of thing. But 
it's the bit before that that is the, is the nicest because you can feel something's happening, but it hasn't happened yet, but you feel like it's going to. There's that moment when you've still got your friends and the people you know coming along and the new people are coming in and it's blending like that. Is that kind of what you mean as well? Yeah, it's the anticipation. It's a bit like when you're falling in love with someone. Those first six months when you shag like rabbits. Oh, I don't know if I can say that. Can I? I probably can. Oh, we're going to get dirty here. Don't you worry about that. Oh, good. It kind of feels like that. And then when you get the hit and everything, that is great. But there's something better for me about the just before. It's lovely. We've got a quote here from you from March 5th, 1983 from the Record Mirror. On the front cover, Mary Wilson, I'd rather muck about than be sexy. A completely out-of-context quote that they love putting on the front of these magazines. There's another one from you I like. The problem about being famous is, what if I'm walking down the shops and I fall over and there's a hole in my tights? Did I say that? That's ridiculous. That's a legitimate issue. If there's a hole in your tights at any time and someone notices it, it can be embarrassing. Well, yeah. Well, but it's quite fashionable to have holes in your tights now. I think the worst thing would be if you didn't have any knickers on. That would be a bit worse. But I didn't think of that at the time. That would get you in the sun. You'd be in the sun for sure. Oh, it would, yeah. There's Ryan Wallace who worked for the BBC for a while and when he heard you were from Neesden, he asks, is the best way to drive to Neesden via Shoot Up Hill Road? Does that mean anything to you? Well, it depends where you're coming from. Then you'd have to go through Willesden. This is sending people to sleep, isn't it? People are putting this into their GPS right now as we talk. Bob Down, also known as Mark Trevorrow, who I believe has worked with you a few times in the UK. Bob Down, yes, remember him? Bob Down, gosh, yes, I do. Oh, Mary Wilson. He just says, huge hello, and he still thinks you are completely fabulous. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, gosh, isn't everyone being really nice? How lovely. Glenn Keenan, he was over at my place the other day, and there was a photo of you on the wall doing your makeup. Ten by eight. I really like that. Is that your bedroom? Oh, that? Yeah. It's a great photo, that. He said, she confused the hipsters of the early 80s English music press. And I think you did. They didn't know quite what to make of you sometimes, Mary. No, they didn't, because it was just after punk had faded away. But the great thing about the 80s was everyone was very glamorous. And now here's that glamorous glamour puss. Here's Mary. Boy George, the Human League, the Eurythmics, you know, we all dressed up, but we dressed up in our own way. A lot of us didn't have stylists with our own taste. Most of my stuff came from charity shops. Every fashionable woman I know wants to know, did you get your dresses made for you or did you mainly buy from vintage shops? Because there's a great quote from you saying you love going out on tour because it gave you an excuse to buy new outfits. Later on, I did have someone making me stuff, but it was there's a place called Portobello Road in London and they've got loads of, you know, what we would now call vintage shops. They sold secondhand stuff. And I used to go down there and, and get things. And, and also there was in Neesden, uh, every so often, there was the Neesden Sea Scouts jumble sale. Now, why there were Sea Scouts in Neesden, I've got no idea. We're nowhere near the sea. Maybe it was a global warming thing. They were getting ready. Maybe they were ahead of their time, because I'm talking like 1980. The women who used to run the jumble sales would phone me and say, just letting you know, there's a jumble sale coming up and there's a few Lurex dresses. Should we put them aside? So they did. I used to get my earrings there. You can't find stuff like that now. And I've still got some of it. The first dress I wore on TV cost 20 pence from the Needs and Sea Scout jumble sale. It was a blue Lurex number. 
I think they didn't know what to make of me because I wasn't really like anyone else. And that's the point, isn't it? In my opinion, if you're a musician or a pop star, is to not be like anyone else. I managed to get it a copy of The Melody Maker with you on the front cover with a little bird. <laughs> You've had enough of this guy's interviewing you and you say, look, I'm not actually Depeche Mode, you say, <laughs> doing the interview. Because it's obvious that you're not and he's interviewing you like you should be. Were they trying to be a bit political, were they? The whole thing started out because it was his birthday and he had to interview you for lunch and that's what he started. Typical English journalist starts writing about something that has nothing to do with anything that is in part of the story. It goes on about, well, you know, you don't write your own songs, are you a singer? And you went, I'm an entertainer. And it's, when you said you were an entertainer, it was like you were like throwing gasoline on the fire and, and then you eventually said, look, I'm not Depeche Mode. They could be and they still can be quite nasty. And like, What are you getting out of it? Maybe it's just envy because they're not doing much themselves. I don't really know. And also, it's much harder to write nice things about someone than it is to write nasty things. It's quite easy to write nasty things. You can find all these wonderful adjectives and be clever with your words. But to be nice about someone takes a bit more effort, I think. Dusty Springfield never wrote one song. You got the cover. There's a double-page interview and this guy... Uh. That's a very valid point, Maynard, the fact that, yeah, I'm on the cover. I've got a double-page spread, so wait a minute. Who's the fool here? February 26, 83. Look, you're in there with Laurie Anderson, Thin Lizzy, Madness, Eurythmics, Depeche Mode, and you on the front cover. So there. Exactly. By the way, listener, Mary Wilson. Love man, love man, I'm on it. She is not Depeche Mode. In case anyone's tuning in for Depeche Mode, you'll be sadly disappointed. <laughs> One last greeting. Kim Sand writes, Did you stop doing your beehive hairdo because you were getting migraines from the 150 hairpins you had to put in all the time? <laughs> I sometimes get headaches, actually. When it started, I just used to do it myself, and it wasn't that big. And then I got my hairdresser, Susie, and I said, oh, we, we need a bigger one. So she did quite a big one. And then I met Peter Cannon, who I'm still very, very close to. And he's the one who did the M-class hairdo, which you later evolved into, I believe. Yeah, he's amazing at hairdos. That's his forte. He's brilliant at that. He'd say, well, should we make it a bit bigger? Well, what should we put in the back? Let's put this in the back and all that. It was so exhausting. I would have to go to, I've got a fantastic photograph someone took of me um, asleep in bed in a hotel with my head hanging off the side of the bed because I couldn't put my head on a pillow because it would squash my beehive. It was usually because I would have an interview or something first thing in the morning. So I thought, oh, I don't want to have my hair done again. I'm not going to take it down. I'll leave it. And it looks like the elephant man. It's quite hilarious, actually, this photograph. I enjoy watching your videos because you did hide little things in the back of your beehive. There'd be a Christmas decoration or a photo or a coloured ribbon. People should have hired it for advertising space. <laughs> yeah, they should have. Your name here. I just wanted to move on. Everyone has their first look, don't they? Look at Phil Oakey from Human League. I love your his lopsided bob and things like that. So I did have loads of other hairdo, but I don't have it now or anything because when you do that kind of 1950s and 60s, which I still love and I still have a nod to it in the way I dress. I mean, I'm 67 now. So if I was to have a beehive now, when I was young, it was kind of cute and ironic because I had a nice plump face and everything. But now you no longer, you no longer look cute. You just look older. And when you're 67, you don't want to look even older. You've still got the great fashion sense in the eyes have it with Matt Backer that's up on YouTube. You've got a, you've got a great selection of our I'm a time 
do it with my clothes and I still sort of shish my hair up a bit, but nothing like that. But I still love it. Have you got kids or a teenage daughter that at one stage said, oh, mum, your antics are a bit embarrassing for me? I have a 25-year-old daughter. Well, I hope she stops saying that then. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes I'll say, do you want to come to the gig? And she'll say, uh, well, I suppose you're just going to be doing Crimea River and no, not really. I thought, thank you a lot. But she will. I mean, in fact, I'm, I'm singing tomorrow night at my friend's 60th birthday. There's loads of us singing tomorrow. So she's coming with me tomorrow night, but probably because she wants to see everybody else. <laughs> Mary Wilson, another thing I have to ask you, watching you many live performances over the decades on YouTube that I've seen, to my ear, you seem impervious to a bad PA or foldback. I've heard no bum notes or attitude stuff going on at all. Have you always got a good PA or you've got a good ear for getting the right note under difficult circumstances? Oh, gosh. Singing in the sun in the middle of Holland, working a difficult gig with a bad PA, you're on the note every time. Miss Beehive 80s was good training really because the sound was always terrible because there was 12 of us it wasn't like a duo or even just a four-piece band there was 12 of us that's a lot of people making a lot of noise and the first lineup they weren't the most amazing musicians and I don't mean that in a horrible way we were just all young and hadn't had the experience and a lot of them ended up not being musicians it wasn't like it was their dream to be a musician I think it was just their dream to do something that was good fun and it was so there was that side of it And we just didn't have the technology then. You'd play places and they had old PAs and you couldn't hear yourself because the band was too loud. And maybe that was the training where I learned to tune into my own head and I learned how to pitch despite all that. Maybe that's paid off. You've also got a talent not many people would know that hadn't seen you live at the time. You're also an amazing quick change artist. In Baby It's True, on more than one live performance, within 50 seconds you leave the stage change your outfit and come back on within 50 seconds or around about 48 bars. I've actually counted it. Hello, Future Main out here just doing the mixing of this podcast and I realise the figures I spoke then are completely incorrect. After reviewing two different versions of Baby It's True live performance by Mary Wilson, I can tell you it's not 50 seconds and 48 bars. It's actually 23 seconds and 12 bars. Let's see how fast you can change your outfit in the back of a taxi when you have to next time on the way home from work. And now back to Maynard and Mary. How'd you do that? <laughs> what's, the, what's the secret, Mary? Come on. A lot of women can change quickly in the back of a cab, but that's quick. Well, the most important thing is you've got to have something you can step into. You can't have something going over your head. That's not going to work, especially with a beehive. So you've got to have a dress with a zip down the back, step into it, zip it up and get back on. Did you have any help or was this all a one-woman show? Peter, my hairdresser, he was always there in the wings waiting. I remember once I went on stage because Baby It's True was my intro and still is when I do it with my huge Will Sations band now. It's still the first song, it's still the song I open with and it starts with that bass line, you know, that bass riff. And Hank had done his spiel, the bass riff was going on and here's Mary. And I walked on and my beehive got caught in the lighting rig and I couldn't move. So of course, he said, here's Mary, I don't know how many times. Help me, somebody help me. Eventually I did get help because they were thinking, where is she? Because I wasn't backstage, but I wasn't on stage. (laughs) 
There are many stories like that. Did the Beehive Court issues in photo shoots? Because for your <laughs> calendar, your 1983 calendar, it looks like they didn't budget for enough headroom for the Beehive and you in the same shot. Yes, that's why I'm either seated or bending down looking very awkward. It was a, a photographer called Adrian Boo, who's a remarkable photographer, tiny little guy. We did it at his studio in the ground of his house, I believe, but he couldn't get me all in the shot. Isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> he couldn't get all of me in the shot. And why didn't you just do the head and shoulders then? But it was all about the outfits, you see, because we were copying Julie London's Calendar Girl album. It's June. January because I'm in love it always is spring in my heart with you in my arms and as I've mentioned many times Mary Wilson's calendar from show people can be reused this very year all the dates match up again oh wow yes I saw that you'd said that somewhere yeah, isn't that amazing I went to the trouble of making an A3 version of it for Mary Wilson calendar for this year have you oh you're Amazing. It's hilarious as an A3. Very funny. It was a laugh doing it, you know, and I, and I tend to use them on certain months. Oh, August, you're in Spain with a Manuel kind of person. In July, you're in a beach chair. You've got a guy in some Speedos and some budgie smugglers leaning over you. I'd have to have a study of that. Have you got to keep many of these outfits or have you just had to rationalise at some point in your life? I gave a lot of my dresses to children in need about 25 years ago, which is a charity here. I remember signing the inside of the dresses and stuff like that. So I don't know who has them. I have some. I sold some because I did a crowdfunder for my one of my albums. Was that the Dolled Up project? No, Dolled Up was financed by Bill Kenwright, the theatre entrepreneur who I know. He, he just came to a gig one night and I was doing my new songs and he said, oh, they're great. And I said, well, I'm trying to make an album at the moment. He said, well, who are you signed to? And I said, well, nobody. I've just got my own label. And he said, well, I'll pay for it. I thought, oh, okay, you've got millions. That's fine. So he did. It was uh, emotional glamour, I think. So if you really love me, say yes. But if you don't do, Don't tell me Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps I gave away the very first dress I had. You know, I auctioned it off to raise money to make the album. And it was for someone in Australia, funnily enough. Did you get many Australian fans? Because looking at your chart history, Just What I Always Wanted was released as a single here. But from what I can see, the album never was. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I've never been to Australia. You were very influential on a group I was in called the Castanet Club in 1982. One or two people had the album on import, which cost a lot of money in those yeah, days. Yeah. And we'd play it. And the image of the calendar and the glamour, and we even try I think to do one or two covers off the album failed miserably but still it was a big influence on the look and the way we were and I wanted to thank you for that for that alone thank you you, Maynard. Goodness me. I'm just going across the room now because one of the albums that I really thought was great was the Rhythm Romance album of yours. Oh, yeah. It's a great jazz crossover album. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I mentioned movies, he don't seem to think that. And he asked me, why don't I come to his flat? Have some supper, 
at the evening pass by Digging my goods Beside a groovy high fi I say yeah yeah And your version of My Funny Valentine that was on there. My funny Valentine. Sweet comic Valentine. You make me smile with my heart. I'm very proud of that version. People really liked it because the thing is, what happened in my pop thing, it got to about 1984, something like that. And I felt like we were just doing the same thing and it was time for changes, really. Everybody wanted me to do different things. My manager wanted me to do one thing and Top Taylor wanted me to do high energy stuff. A bit like Hazel Dean. I know Hazel. She's lovely. You could have done a Hazel Dean. stuff it wasn't my taste we called a song called let's make let's make it last and instead it, it became let's make it the last because it was the last one i recorded It was a very full-on shock for someone who was used to your other material. Yeah, it was all Fairlight, which was a keyboard everyone used back then that did all kinds of special tricks. A bit like uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Relax, have a lot of that on their records. It just wasn't me. And it was weird because the day I did the vocal was the day my dad died suddenly. It was almost like everything was pointing to me saying, oh, this is, I, I don't want to do this anymore. This isn't who I wanted to be. I wanted to be Judy Garland and Dusty Springfield and Bonnie Raitt mixed up a hybrid of those three and I, I just wasn't going there at all and I just thought it's the time to go so I told the record company I didn't want to be with them anymore told my manager I don't want to be with you anymore I just cut ties with everybody and of course most people are dropped by the record company not the other way around I've heard you say this you had a manager who believed in you now most people in show business are going really what who is this manager that believed in their artist where is this person and the fact that the manager believed in you and got you the support for Stan Getz at the Albert Hall that's amazing yes that was a di- different guy because what happened as a result of me cussing ties I was in litigation with the record company for 18 months so I couldn't sign with another record label and my sax player said well you're a great jazz singer why don't we put a jazz quartet together and do jazz so I did a few gigs and then Brian Theobald who was Ronnie Scott's Ronnie Scott's is a very famous club in London for people that don't know it's been there since the 50s and everyone's played there Ella Fitzgerald Sarah Vaughan everybody it's still going Ronnie's agent was a guy called Brian Theobald he became my agent as a jazz singer and he put me on at Ronnie's, he put me on with Stan Getz. He, I mean, it was hilarious. When he put me on with Stan Getz at the Royal Festival Hall, a lot of people had said to me, well, you put in a pop singer on with Stan Getz. You know, that's outrageous. And I remember I, when I walked on stage, <laughs> I walked on and I went, right, my agents told me to drop the cartwheels from the act this evening. And uh, there wasn't one titter in the audience at all because they were very much jazz buffs, you know, so they didn't um, have a sense of humour. They can be very snooty, a jazz buff. Oh, so snooty. Sitting there with their arms folded, what can you do? But I did kind of prove myself in the end and I, I worked with some fantastic musicians, still do. That's how I ended up getting into jazz. That's why the Rhythm Romance happened, because I was approached by that record company saying, do you want to do an album? That's- and that was in 1990. I bought this CD album. It's still got the price on it. In Australian dollars, it was 47 Australian dollars in 1990. 
because it was an import. And I paid exactly the same for Marigold and the Crimea River compilation. That's crazy, isn't it? Gosh. And played them to death on Triple J, my radio station I was working on at the time nationally. In 86, there was some of your stuff in the Triple J library and I was doing Midnight to Dawn. I was just, And you could play any music you like. It was that kind of radio station. But you're working on something at the moment, aren't you, Mary? Yes. I mean, I'm very proud of Pop Deluxe. I think we did a really good job on all those songs that are, you know, quite well-known songs, but I think I've put my own take on them. Don't sleep in the subway, darling. Don't stand in the pouring rain. Don't sleep in the subway, darling. The night is long. Forget your foolish pride. Nothing's wrong. Now you're beside me again. I thought, well, it's time for a change and I don't want to do any more covers. I don't mean at all, ever but I don't want to make another album of covers. So it was time to get down and start writing again. We've written and recorded about six tracks now, maybe towards the end of the year. I'll decide what we're going to do with it. You have your support with Level 42 across the UK there. Yes, I'm going on tour with them in November. Looking back, it's so bizarre. It runs in the family. All the things we are On the backseat of the car With Joseph and Emily really good fun I think it'll be a different audience as well for me I wouldn't have automatically thought you would level 42 there may not be a gay man in sight may not in that audience I don't know different demographic to me but that's a good thing I think Mary Wilson's Christmas pageant with the new Wilsonisation she's having a Christmas pageant on December 8th in Islington in London I thought you should be getting boy George Maybe Dee Snyder would like to come along again, renew your friendship. <laughs> and let's face it, what could Simon Le Bon possibly be doing on December the 8th? He must have that night free, so invite him along as well. Okay, I will, yeah. Well, I did appear with Soft Cell a couple of years ago when they did their show at uh, the O2. So In fact, I think you should sing Tainted Love. This tainted love you've given, I give you all a boy could give you. Take my tears and that's not nearly all tainted love. Yes, a good song. Both versions. It's to you. I think it should be a pageant, maybe a bit of panto, have someone dressed up, have someone, where's Mary? Behind you. That's Do that stuff. That's Christmas. Well, let's see. I've got a few ideas for some guests at the moment. It'll be all over social media. People, have a look at Mary's Instagram because when the lockdown was on, you were wandering around the centre of London to some of your old haunts like the Top Shop hairdresser. Yeah, yeah. Nothing anywhere. Nothing. It was the weirdest, weirdest thing. We just said, let's drive into town. Drove into town. Desert, desert town. I've got photographs that I took of Regent Street, Oxford Street, nothing, no cars, no people. It was so eerie, but also quite beautiful in a way because you could really look at the buildings and get a sense of what it is or what it was really because it still hasn't really, really recovered. And the fact that Topshop, that iconic, huge, on four floors, 
top shop, which is where I did initially get my beehive done back then. So sad. It did make me feel rather sad. I also felt that in some ways the Dutch really got the Mary Wilson experience there because there's a couple of Dutch music press that I've actually been able to grab. It's great. Looked on eBay and there was someone who'd, who'd clipped Mary Wilson bits out of the paper from 82 all the way through to 97 or something. Wow, you've got more stuff than I have. I've taken a photo and put it up with the caption, I may have over-researched this interview. (laughs) Um, I've written the sleeve notes for the box set. It's cherry red. They make great box sets. I mean, it's taken a long time because of the politics with... Rights. It's all rights, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's the rights for this and, oh, gosh. In the past... They couldn't find the show people orchestral version of Crimea River. Warner Brothers couldn't find it. You're a real company. What do you mean you can't find it? Where's the video of you singing that with the orchestra? I'd love to see that. There must be one. No, there isn't. Well, Because I've seen photos. Yeah, there are photos. You see, I only ever made one video. Can you believe that? Beware boyfriend. having a 12-piece band because the budget it wasn't there although it was great fun I wouldn't have changed anything so we made this video for Boyfriend and then when I recorded Crimea River with the orchestra at Air Studios the iconic Air Studios in Oxford Street which isn't there now someone I can't remember who filmed a lot of that and then they chopped it all together with different bits and made a video for just what I've always wanted which was shown on MTV There might be a weird grainy version on YouTube, I'm not sure, but it wasn't made for just what I've always wanted. Someone just did it. In fact, I was wondering, as part of the box set, is it possible for a DVD of the clips to be on there or something like that? I don't think they're doing a DVD. Any rarities? Because a lot of your B-sides and live stuff, and particularly the Young Person's Guide to Compact, the record label, had a couple of songs on that. One of them, I think, recorded at a... Did you play after Eraserhead, the movie? Did you come on after that and sing? That was hilarious, My mum crowned me. Oh, that's what that photo's from. That was my mum crowning me, yes. Hilarious. We put on Eraserhead and Barry Wilson together because, you know, two interesting hairdos. R-A-B-E All these intense art students going, yeah. this this music's rather flippant. I remember we had the baskets you get in a supermarket. Even I did it, I think, walking around the audience carrying these baskets that had Mary Wilson badges in them and little silly things, just handing them out to people. That's what I mean about, because that was just before it happened as well. It's those times that I really treasure because once you've had some kind of success, you just don't get that feeling back because you can't. Compact Records had that bit of a we'll have a go and see what happens attitude. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, Top Taylor's a really clever guy. The front cover of Just What I Always Wanted where you're holding Tupperware and wandering around this fabulous thing that looks like a set, but I'm damn sure that's someone's lounge room. It, it was someone's lounge. We did dress it up a bit, but it was someone's lounge. It was a journalist, actually. It was his flat. And I had and still have quite a collection of Tupperware because I had many Tupperware parties a long time ago. (laughs) I've got a thing about Tupperware. They've got the vacuum seal. If you've got some mints, you pop it in there, stick it in the freezer. Absolutely. And my cat, she only has half a pouch in the morning and half a pouch at night. So once you've opened it, it has to be kept somewhere and it's kept in a nice yellow square 
Tupperware container until tea time when she has the other half. And the cats have a hard time. They can't burp it. They can't get it out. No. And you've got to know how to let the air out with Tupperware. I'm very knowledgeable about Tupperware. With just what I always wanted, the BBC Top of the Pops, there's three or four different clips of you on that. So where were they with Wonderful? The other ones off the album. Well, wonderful. Probably didn't get high enough in the charts for me to appear. I'm thinking, gosh, isn't it awful how you can't remember? But it was a long time ago, Maynard. Crimea River, the one where the people are dancing and there's all these little beehives on a stick. I don't know if that's a top of the pops one. I did do top of the pops, Crimea River, and I sang live. You sang it live, and you could see all the, all the smarty bums around there. We, we don't see this very often. Now you say. song to mine you have to sing it you have to be honest and show some kind of emotion with it it was me that insisted on it i said i want to sing it live on the tube as well you had the prawns the violinists with you oh yes the prawn cocktails yeah they were great that was just a great performance live as well and that gave everybody a big glass of shut up juice as well when you did that come on and cry me Great signature song for you. So I have to do Crimea River and I have to do just what I've always wanted, even if I'm doing it with a, a small lineup. That album has a great Burt Bacharach cover. Oh, yes, I still do that. Yeah, it's a lovely song. I hear your laughter and there's something I got to know. Are you there with another girl instead of me? I'm standing easy to sing actually either that's typical Burt Bacharach because he plays the weirdest chord his songs go in the strangest directions clever just want to mention just what I always wanted listening to it with headphones on there's so much of the time in it that sounds like there's a DX7 sample of a toy piano in it There's early vocoder being used in the backing vocals. It makes an interesting call mix as well. It's a 
fantastic record. It still stands up. It still gets played on the radio quite a lot. It's a great song, but it's a fantastic record. Tony Mansfield, who produced it, did a really great job on it. And there are lots of little things going on in there. Toy piano, top always loved things like that. And we always, on a lot of our records, we'd want a bit of a French horn. recording it certain recording sessions are just such good fun and you remember everything that happened I remember I was making tuna fish sandwiches I remember all of that I remember what I was wearing I was wearing a a crimply pink dress with matching jacket that came from a charity shop with white stilettos I I remember all of those that's almost what you've got in the June calendar shot on yes it may have been you know what it might have been that outfit could be crimpoline yeah, crimply. What a horrible material that was. It didn't breathe, did it? Oh, God, no. It didn't crease because you could have gone out to sea in it and you would have been fine. I always like to end with a song that the guest picks, and it can be anything you've done ever. What would you like me to finish on? And maybe we could talk about that for a sec before we play it. Oh, gosh. Oh, my word. While we're Mary's thinking, here's Mary's profile from June 5th, 1982. Musical influences, Stevie Wonder, The Beatles, Hero, Your Dad. Books, George Orwell. Grimm's Fairy Tales, and the UFO Phenomenon. (laughs) The UFO Phenomenon. I looked that up. That was a 1980 release about the history of ufology and the fact that they may come from somewhere else. So you were getting into the other back then, Mary. Yeah, I can't believe I said that, though. Honestly, it's hilarious. I mean, I'm a bit of a comedian as well as being a singer. (laughs) <laughs> Your fantasy was to date Oliver Reed, but the Oliver Reed from 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. Oliver Reed, when he was about 22, oh, my God, he was absolutely gorgeous. Black hair, blue eyes, tall. Oh, gorgeous. And then he just lost his way somewhat. Speaking of lost your way, what happened to the Austin 1300 estate with the sunroof, the 1971 car there? How did it meet its end? I think it just conked out after a while. I, I got myself a mini that seems very you. Yes, it was blue, metallic blue mini, mini clubman it was. It was very nice. But that Austin 1300, I think what happened was I went to see some friends of mine in South Kensington and on the way home all the electrics went and I had to drive home with no lights or anything and I thought I'll either get arrested or I'll have a terrible accident. But I didn't make it home. So that was a sign that it was dying. What was it like when you heard yourself on the radio, your song for the first time? How'd that happen for you? I was at home with my mum and dad. We knew that Annie Nightingale was going to play it. It was a Friday night. Annie Nightingale is like an iconic DJ here. So is this Radio 1? Yeah, Radio 1. She played Dance Card, which is a crazy record. played it and I remember we turned it up on the radiogram in the front room. It was thrilling. It was absolutely thrilling. I think you knew something in the early 80s because you were doing songs like Rave. He told me he'd meet me on Saturday night and all I want to do is rave. He told me he thought I was dynamite but all I want to do is rave. Ecstasy. Are you wishing you're with me again in ecstasy? When you get next to me, where you're supposed to be, you find yourself in love again in ecstasy. Oh, baby, don't think twice. I'll be in paradise. <laughs> Which 
was about six years ahead of what was going on in the culture. You know, no one's ever mentioned that, but that's very true. Why do you think I was playing it in 1990? <laughs> <For> those... <laughs> One of the fastest records ever made, I think, Ecstasy. I do like the slow version. Are you wishing you're with me? The fast version is my favourite. It's ridiculous. It's so fast. It's mad. Are you wishing you're with me again in ecstasy when you get next to me where you're supposed to be? So from your discography, which one would you like to choose? I think White Horses. Tell us more about that one. White Horses was a TV show here in the 60s. And it was actually, I think it was Belgian originally. And it was about this little girl So when I was a kid, I used to, when I got home from school, my dad would be at home because he was a shift worker. And so he'd be at home and I'd sit on his lap and we would do the crossword in the evening news. And then we'd watch kids TV. And there were loads of things, you know, Blue Peter, Magpie, all these different shows. But this one, White Horses, I can't even remember what happened in it. I know there was a white horse and and a girl of about 12. The theme tune, sung by a girl called Jackie, was called White Horses. And I'd always wanted to sing it because the melody and the lyric is just gorgeous. I mentioned it to my guitarist. But in fact, I emailed him and I sent him a YouTube link and I said, can you have a look at this? Because I need you to learn this song because I'm going to record it and I want to play it live and blah, blah, blah. And he wrote back and he said, well, I don't need to because my dad wrote it. I didn't even know. When I do it live, I don't even say what it is. I start singing it. and Everyone goes... Oh, because they remember the TV show and it gives you that lovely, secure, warm feeling, you know, when you got home from school. It would take you straight back to sitting on the couch with the dad doing the crosswords in a a really wonderful place. Yeah, it's such a lovely, lovely song. I'm probably asking you to play something that maybe a lot of people in Australia won't know. Maybe we'll have a chat when the box set comes out, because I'm sure there'll be a lot of people who are going to be interested in that. That might be an import one here. I remember my Kevin Rowland's album. Have you heard him doing The Greatest Love of All? Have you heard his Kevin's version of that, Mary? Yes, I have. The greatest love of all unique isn't it well he's unique he's unique i went out with him for five minutes hang on a minute stop the kevin and mary yes back in the day it was very brief i'm not referring to anything in particular when i say it was very brief uh, <laughs> I love, a raunchy mary does he choose his own key and the band choose theirs and they meet halfway in between i think it's that I'm glad we got people like him to mix it up a bit because sometimes I put the radio on or I'll hear something and I think, what is this? This is absolute tripe. There's a lot of tripe out there and there's a lot of songs that were written by 14 people and it's not even a song. It's a chant. It's one line that they sing over and over and over again. I don't care. God, but there is also some fantastic stuff out there. But as far as pure pop music has gone a little bit down the drain, I think, although I do like Harry Styles, I must say. Like you said, whether they're writing by committee, whether it's people that are inexperienced that were doing it, but at no other time in history has there been a chance to find your own music. No matter what you're into, you can find it somewhere. Absolutely, yeah. But it's just the, the pop side of things is, I think, not so good. And I think a lot of it is because there's not much humour going on. Oh, yeah. There was a lot of humour going on in pop music, and it's all terribly serious. 
Can we not have a bit of romance, please? It's not written in a clever way. I think that's what I'm trying to say. It's not exactly literature, is it? They all sing like Hilda Baker. She was an actress about 50 years ago, and she used to say, Who are you? You stood standing there. <laughs> making love, making love, making love, making love. Do you come here often? And I just think, oh, my God, they're all singing like Hilda Baker. You know, one note will do, thanks. We don't need 25 notes where one will do. Thank you. I blame the talent shows for that, the voice in that, because everyone goes, ah, they've got to warble up and warble down. They don't just hit the note. Yeah. They give you a choice of three or four. There's two things. There's the pyrotechnics, which is totally unnecessary and meaningless. And the other one is, how high can you hit that note? That, that's not singing. Singing is about creating a mood and making someone feel something. I mean, even Whitney Houston would hit a note and hold it, but that was a completely different thing. It was in context. Kevin's version of The Greatest Love of All, he makes it his own, and when he goes to the key change, he just blows through that key change like he's, he'll, he'll get to that key change when he feels like it. Yeah. Don't you give <laughs> me your key change. Yeah, it's fantastic. I love it. He doubles down. I've never heard a vocalist do that yeah. to that extent before. Yeah. He said he's bringing his soul to it. And if that's what he's bringing his soul to it, I'm down with it. I think we need people like that. Like we need Mark Armand. Mark is so dramatic. Oh, he yeah. gives like 250% with everything. It's great. If I could be for only an hour, if I could be for an hour every day, if I could be for just one little hour, cute in a stupid ass way. It's great. Is he actually as sexy in person as he seems? <laughs> It was Slice Radio from Orange, who are in the middle of New South Wales. They asked me to ask you that question. Why, I don't know. Probably a huge Mark Armand enclave going on in the middle of New South Wales, I suspect. Well, I've never thought of Mark as sexy because um, we're probably not attracted to each other in that way. Yes, it's a certain thing that chemistry that's, yeah, hmm, yeah. You know, but he's lovely. He's a lovely, lovely man. And I love him. I think he's, he's a great guy. He's sexy to other people. Let's put it that way. There's your answer. Slice radio from Orange in New South Wales. Put that in your pipe or smoke it or light it or vape it, whatever you want to do. <laughs> Mary Wilson, thank you. Let's have a listen to White Horses. I'm looking forward to hearing more about the great pageant on the 8th of December there in Islington in London. And I'm really looking forward to the box set that's coming out. Thank you. Thank you so much, Maynard. It's been lovely. I would do the old cliche thing of this interview is just what I always wanted, but everyone always says that, don't they? Rather. <laughs> thank you for your time, Mary Wilson. My pleasure. On white horses, let me ride away To my world of dreams so far away Let me run to the sun To a world my heart can understand It's a gentle, warm and wonderland far away As the day is born, when the stars are gone, we'll race to meet the dawn. So when I can only see the grey of a sad and very lonely day, that's when I softly sigh on white horses, snowy white horses, let me ride away. Let me ride away 
I've just been spending the day immersed in my Mary Wilson collection here. Oh, I do apologise. <laughs> On maynard.com.au. AU! Bryson and Hume. Everything digital.